electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, the key to the market. One of our traders says, look at this if you want to know where stocks are headed next. We'll drill down on what that is straight ahead. Plus, big news out of Berkshire Hathaway crossing after the close. Warren Buffett's holding company selling 99% of its stake in Wells Fargo. We'll get our traders' reaction to this big move. And later, booking it, we'll tell you what sent Airbnb investors running for the exits today. But we start off... With the mega media deal that is rocking Wall Street, AT&T announcing a whopping $43 billion deal to combine its Warner Media unit with Discovery. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got all the details in the analysis. Julia. Well, the combination of Discovery and Warner Media creates one of the biggest media companies in the world. Now, Discovery brings to this global sports rights, reality TV strength, and that is designed to complement Warner Media's news, domestic sports, as well as the original content in HBO and HBO Max. Now, together, the company spends some $20 billion on content annually, and CEO David Zasov says they plan to spend more. This is a play for scale in advertising and also in streaming. Discovery's Zaslav, who will run the combined company, saying they could reach as many as 400 million subscribers. Warner, together with Discovery, will be a, a really strong global force. But also that the, the vision for John and I was the number one telecommunications uh, me- company in the world and the number one media company in the world. Um, and uh, that's the mission that we're both on. And I think we both now have the tools to accomplish it. And AT&T CEO John Stanky says this will allow his shareholders to realize the value of Warner Media's direct-to-consumer strength in HBO Max, while AT&T can now focus on its core. I'm absolutely confident we're going to see good things for for both equities when this is all said and done. Right now, our focus is on making sure we're the best broadband company in America. But Melissa, shares of both stocks did close lower. AT&T down 2.7%. Discovery off 5%. There did seem to be some concern about AT&T cutting its dividend. Back over to you. Which was fat um, <laughs> prior to the, the announcement today, Julia. I'm curious, you know, maybe selfishly, we both work for Comcast, the parent company of NBC Universal. And so when you take a look at this deal, basically it dismantles the pipes plus content business model. What's your take or what are the, what's the take of the people you talk to about what this imputes on Comcast's value? Well, look, I think that the Comcast pipes are different because it does have that core cable business. Comcast also has Peacock, which is an ad-supported play, so going in a different direction. Interestingly, HBO did not have an ad-supported version. HBO Max did not have an ad-supported version, but they are preparing to launch an ad-supported version in June. So I do think that the companies are different. I don't think it's an apples-to-apples comparison. I do think, though, that there will be more consolidation, and we can expect an NBC Universal to be looking at other 
other potential assets to acquire down the line. A lot of things might depend, though, on how long it takes for this deal to get approved. There is an expectation that the regulatory hurdles are not insurmountable, unlike some of AT&T's challenges um, with, a, with deal approval in the past, that this deal will get approved. But maybe it could take longer than um, AT&T and Discovery are hoping it will take. All right. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson has been on the story all day. Tim, I'll go to you. You're the AT&T shareholder. You pounded the table in AT&T. Now what? Yeah, good question. I mean, look, I, I, I'm very mixed feelings about this deal. The stock was starting to move. The, the, the HBO Max streaming dynamic was starting to be built into the share price. We were starting to get the sense of a debt pay down, uh, and yet we still had this extraordinary dividend. I think a lot of the, the movement in the stock today, which basically from open to close moved down about 7.5%, was around that dividend. Uh, remember, you know, the, the, the dynamic here is AT&T um, now is going to ramp up CapEx dramatically uh, to improve five fiber and 5G build out and things that they really need to compete, frankly, in that space. Uh, And the dividend announced is going to go down to somewhere around 4.6 percent. Incidentally, very interesting. The exact dividend payout uh, percentage is is Verizon, which is, you know, obviously a key competitor who also recently just, you know, closed on selling off their media assets. Remember the the AOL stuff. Um, So it's it's a it's a strange day for AT&T shareholders, I think, because uh, the company is starting to show some progress both on both fronts uh, in terms of the core business and even the media business. Uh, And this reflects a desire that maybe those assets that three years ago were worth 85 billion are now worth 85 billion or 88 billion today. Right, right, right. Um, for AT&T, though, a big component is paying down the debt, the massive amounts of debt on the balance sheet. So that is good from a balance sheet perspective. Um, Dan, I'm curious, where do you go on this? There are so many places to go, whether it be, you know, the streaming wars heating up or what this does to AT&T, what this means for the communications industry, et cetera. Yeah, you know, I think all of us over the last few years at times we were hoping that AT&T might get re-rated because of those assets Tim talked about. And I mean, they have the pipes, they have um, 45% market share in the wireless market here in the U.S. And there was a way to see a lot of synergies um, between having the content and having the pipes. And, and I just think that we were talking about it earlier. I, I've never seen such a dramatic um, shift like this for a major corporation uh, at the nexus of all of these different technologies. And I think Tim lays it out pretty clearly. You know, look at what's happened since this deal closed a couple years ago. T-Mobile has merged with Sprint, so they've become a very strong number three. They were kind of weak three and four players. T-Mobile stock has gone up 100% in the last two, two and a half years, while AT&T has gone down and Verizon's gone up just a little bit. And Tim just mentioned that, you know, Verizon actually in their last quarter, they lost more wireless ads than were expected. And then what did we see? the announcement of selling the Oath or the Yahoo and the AOL assets. So to me, this is a a dramatic about face. Um, I do think this is about 5G going forward, and it's a much more uh, competitive wireless landscape here in the U.S. than maybe it was five years ago. Guy Dami, where do you go on this trade? Well, before I go on the trade, I'm going to say, you know, transformational is something. I heard it seven years ago when AT&T bought DirecTV. That was going to be transformational. It was a $48 billion deal. Then I heard it five years ago. When they spent $85 billion on, on, on uh, water, right? And to forget about the fact that they threw away money with Leap and Next Wave or whatever mm-hmm. those things were a decade or so ago. So, I mean, they keep doing the same things over and over again. And I wake up and every single day it's a $31 stock. <laughs> Where do you go, though? I mean, everybody wants to be Netflix, right? And Tim will correctly point out 
Great to talk about Netflix, except the stock has effectively traded sideways since June of last year. I mean, it's been somewhere between sort of 480 and 550 the entire time. So even Netflix isn't the place to go. I think Dan said it, as counterintuitive as it might sound, the one company that's sort of stuck to their knitting has been T-Mobile all along, and that's served them very well. Where do you go in the space? Well, I guess Comcast now becomes a very valuable asset. It's just a question of what happens with the stock. It's had a decent run. Wait, why do you think Comcast becomes a very valuable asset? Well, I mean, everybody, well, I mean, maybe they're, you know, maybe I should rephrase. I think they, it, they're in a position now where maybe they're forced to do something, although I think they'd ah. be dealing from strength as opposed, in my opinion, to AT&T, which is just seemingly just throwing darts against the board. I'm sure I'm going to get added at from people. But, you know, look over the history of the last seven years. Forced it. Um, and Brian Kelly, I'm going to get to you in a minute. I promise. I promise. But um, and maybe I'm asking this selfishly as a Comcast employee, but <laughs> forced to do something, meaning they make an acquisition or they follow in the footsteps of AT&T and focusing on the core. Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder it's it can't happen because I'm sure there'll be there'll be regulatory concerns. Um, but, you know, a Viacom a Comcast thing, if you strip out mm. a couple things, becomes very interesting. Now, mm. I think uh, Rich Greenfield spoke about that. And he asked he said it's not going to happen either. But, you know, that's the first thing that sort of came to my head when this went down this morning. All right. Brian Kelly, your thoughts now. Well, for me, I'd take a look at the other side of this deal on Discovery, right? Because we, what we know about AT&T is they're not very good at buying assets and they're not very good at selling assets. So maybe they've actually sold these assets at the wrong time. I would suspect that Discovery would have traded a little bit better had it not been destroyed by the hedge fund blowup that we saw over the last month. So I think somewhere around here, you want to see Discovery, you want to see maybe new buyers come in, a new set of shareholders that are willing to buy into that story that streaming is going to be the, the new place, whereas AT&T, to Tim's point, I think you're going to have to spend an awful lot of money to be competitive on this. Yeah, you get to pay down some debt. Maybe the dividend's a little bit safer than it was yesterday. Uh, but to me, I think you look at Discovery. I would wait for it to try to bottom. It's trying to do that now. But maybe you get one of those big washout days, reversals, lots of volume. That's when I'd start to look at Discovery. All right, let's get more about what this mega deal means for the media space. Joining us now is Jessica Reef Ehrlich, the senior media and entertainment analyst at Bank of America. Jessica, great to have you with us on a day like today. What do you think is the biggest ramification of this deal in the industry? It's a really big deal. Um, and it's the second time that the old time Warner found a home that wasn't expected. Um, but at least this time it's in media hands and will be nurtured and hopefully come back to life. I mean, Warner Brothers has, or the old time Warner has amazing assets and we shouldn't forget that. They just wilted under, under AT&T's management. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see, you know, what businesses develop. And I, I think it will be a completely different story in a year, but there are ramifications for, I mean, the entire sector from a discovery AT&T perspective, mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a, a turnout, a, a complete change over the shareholder base. If 71% of the new company will be owned by AT&T shareholders who are used to a 7% dividend, they're not going to get that from a company that has to invest to drive the streaming business. So, so they, there will be a, a change out from that. Um, in addition, historically, whenever there's a big acquisition in media, no matter how great it is, your parent company, Comcast, made the most brilliant acquisition with incredible financial terms when they bought NBC Universal in two tranches. But it was an amazing deal. 
and the stock really went sideways from the time they announced it until they closed. So, so Discovery is sort of stuck in deal limbo right now anyway, and they won't close until mid-22. So, so, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity, mm-hmm. but it will take some time to play out. For the rest of the industry, um, it's kind of like Disney buying most of the Fox assets. It's the time for reflection for, for the big media companies. Right. What assets do they need to have over the next three years? Obviously, brands matter. Scale matters. Balance sheets matter. And it, 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 I think they're all going internally and saying, what do I need to have? What can I dispose of? What can I acquire? And so you put companies into play. You, you guys just talked about Comcast. Right. Uh, Comcast, who would be an acquirer, but Viacom, who, you know, who knows if Sherry Redstone really wants to sell. It, there, there are tons of pieces, whether whole or in parts, that are incredibly attractive. Fox is small enough to um, be broken up further and go away, or, and they have great assets, but they have a great balance sheet. They can right. also get bigger. Right. So this is a time we're going to see a lot of movement. Right, sure. And, and I'm wondering, you know, with, with AT&T selling its media assets, with Verizon doing the same, Jessica, and I know you've been a bull um, of Comcast for quite some time. You've got a buy rating on the stock. Why is it that Comcast model works when the others don't, owning the pipes and the content? And does this prove that they are, that Comcast is a great executor of this business model? Or is this proof that maybe they should internally reflect and think about separating core from content? I, I, the answer is the former. Mm-hmm. Comcast has phenomenal management from the top down. From the, the corporate, you know, from Brian Roberts down and from the divisional level at every, every part of the company, um, they really run their business as well. And if, if you look at NBCU, which is run by Jeff Shell and everybody under him, they, they, they've just done a phenomenal job. So, you know, as much as, as, as tough as the run at, at Warner, the old time Warner has been under AT&T, it's been quite the opposite at NBCU. So, um, and I think it, it really goes to Comcast management style and, and who they hire. They've done a great job integrating the businesses as well. And I do think it's likely that they ultimately get bigger in mm. meeting. I mean, there's lots of companies that would fit in that could help their theme parks, that could help their streaming business, you know, content that really would fit with them. Hey, Jessica, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. A fascinating day, as you said, in the sector. So now you're left with, you know, three, really four mammoth streaming plays, um, and then a lot more consolidation possibly to go. Uh, but, you know, whether it's Netflix, Disney Plus, uh, you know, clearly Peacock, and, and now what we have here, uh, do you, you know, what, what do you think is, is really the net end game for everybody? Are they going to sit tight, or do you think there's more consolidation? Because, again, um, there's some that have direct exposure and more exposure to linear networks, not so good. There's some that really have the studio, the content. They all have different, uh, call them advantages here. I totally agree. Um, this is a chance to kind of rearrange assets. But again, you know, scale matters. Disney has, you remember, Disney acquired a lot. <laughs> they, you know, from over the last 10 or 15 years, Bob Iger bought Pixar when he took over, followed by Marvel, followed by Lucas, which is the Star Wars brand. So they, they have a lot that, that was purchased. Comcast bought a lot with NBCU. And again, I think there's probably room to grow through acquisition as well. Um, this is a big move by Discovery, but now they have to 
they have to flesh out their direct-to-consumer plan. So they're, you know, like, you know, they have the potential, but they're not, they're certainly not there right now. Um, and so for other players, the, the other players are not, a, I mean, of course, there's Netflix and Amazon, but everybody else has to scale up and figure out a strategy. You know, I'm going to, again, go to, back to Comcast and NBCU. They have a different strategy, and it's really interesting. So mm-hmm. Peacock, with their AVOD strategy, is, is a great opportunity or a great platform for advertisers. Right. Jessica, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. We do appreciate yeah. it. Jessica Reef Ehrlich of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, Dan Nathan, the media industry, this space has changed so tremendously over just the past five years. What do you think? And this is going to might be a curveball, but I know you can handle it. What is yeah. the media deal that we haven't thought of yet that you think is coming well, down the pipe? Well, Mel, you remember when Karen and I broke some fast money ground? I think it was last month or so. We did like a double power pitch on the Viacom. Mm, and and you know, Jessica recall. just mentioned that this is not the one that is not on people's radar, but it's likely the one that should happen. And when you think of the size of it and the enterprise value of this thing under $50 billion, I mean, this one makes a lot of sense to me, um, especially for some of those competitors now who are looking at Disney and looking at this new combination and looking how to size up for what will be just a different landscape going forward with, as Tim said, a handful of streaming behemoths. Coming up, some big news on a big bank. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway nearly closing out its position in one of the financials. It is a headline that got all of the traders talking after the close. We'll break it all down straight ahead. Plus, BK says there is one sector that could hold the real key to where stocks are heading. It's not tech, and it may not be pretty. We'll tell you what it is. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big news out of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway crossing after the close. Let's get to Leslie Picker with all the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa, an unusual trade for Berkshire Hathaway cutting in half its stake in Chevron uh, shares the firm acquired confidentially just in the second half of 2020 and revealed only in the fourth quarter. At the end of March, however, Berkshire still owned about two and a half billion dollars worth, despite selling 25 million shares during the quarter. Berkshire Hathaway had been paring back its stake in Wells Fargo for a while now as well. But during the quarter, the firm almost completely sold out, divesting nearly 99% of its holdings. At quarter end, Berkshire had a 26 million dollar stake in Wells Fargo. Uh, Warren Buffett's firm also selling about five and a half million shares of GM during the quarter. Now, all three names, Chevron, Wells Fargo and GM, had been huge winners this year. And Berkshire had indicated earlier this month that it had been a net seller of equities during the quarter. Mel. 
All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker with the latest on that. Uh, Wells Fargo, that move was very big. Um, and just last week, Tim, as Guy pointed out on our conference call, you and Karen talked about trimming your positions in Bank of America. Yeah, and, and look, the banks have been such big winners. And if you look at their outperformance to the S&P since November, it's north of you know 60%. And so you know, if you look at Wells Fargo, the interesting thing is this was really the, the maybe the quarter that you started to see Wells Fargo closing the gap on a relative basis to some of the other banks. So um, our, our maybe slightly tactical call um, in Bank of America, I, I think maybe a little different than Buffett, who's not terribly tactical um, to his credit, I think. Um, you know, it's interesting also if you look at the stock, since the close of March 31, of course, we don't know when they were selling most of those shares, uh, but the stock's up 21 percent uh, quarter to date. So it tells you uh, you get a big seller out of the way also in a time when banks obviously have had a favorable backdrop. Um, that may also be helping Wells Fargo here. Again, a stock which we all know had underperformed the, the peers for a long time and has now been outperforming. What is that expression that Tim off a guy? What's that expression? Cutting the flowers <laughs> to trim the weeds or vice don't, versa? D- don't cut your flowers cut your if flowers. you have weeds or don't okay. smoke is weed. Wells Fargo don't smoke a flower? weed while you're cutting your don't flowers. Don't smoke weed is definitely <laughs> just saying no. That's not what I said. Um, regardless, what I say. the question is, did Mr. Buffett sell too soon, Guy? Uh well, it's interesting. I think Wells Fargo traded a little north of 40 during that time period. So did he say, well, I mean, yes, in retrospect, he did. I mean, the obvious answer only because the stock's trading 48. So the right answer is yes. However, I think Wells Fargo is a weed, by the way. If you look, mm. Bank of America is trading north of, or at least it was trading north of two times tangible book. You know, Wells Fargo is about 1.4. So Wells Fargo should trade, in my opinion, on a benign tape closer to tangible book than the rest of them. So in the in the Parthenon of banks, it's a weed. <laughs> J.P. Morgan is, you know, is a bouquet of roses and BAC is somewhere in the middle. There is no Parthenon. Parthenons don't have weeds and roses. It's like mixed metaphors. It's all wrong. That is all wrong. Brian <laughs> Kelly, which trade? But you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I do, oddly. Uh, <laughs> Brian Kelly, which trade do you like or dislike the most that Berkshire Hathaway did in the quarter? You know, so the one that's most interesting to me is Chevron, obviously, because I'm, I, you know, I'm t- keeping a keen eye on, on oil and what's going on there. But I would mention that, you know, one, I, I've never really traded 13 Fs at all just because they're so old. But in, in Buffett's case, you know, you can actually start to glean a couple things from it. And I think probably the takeaway for me is maybe this has nothing to do with those individual companies. And maybe it has everything to do with that he had a big profit in him. He thinks taxes are going up. So this was not a bad time to take that profit and lock in those gains and not have to do it later in the year. That's interesting. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. Everyone's worried about where big tech is heading. But BK says there's one sector that will really drive the markets. The traders are plugging into that trade next. Plus, the crypto craze is collapsing. Bitcoin falling hard. But have no fear. The Chartmaster is here to lay out where it could be headed next. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Markets, closing with losses to kick off the week with the tech-heavy Nasdaq falling for a third straight day. But BK says the real key to this market may be what happens not with tech, but with energy, and it could be a lose-lose situation. BK, please explain. (laughs) Yeah, you know, geez, and I haven't had my bear suit on for a long time, so (laughs) lose-lose sounds terrible, but for me... It's, it's really looking at the oil market, right? Because there's a lot that you can get from the oil market at this point in time in terms of global demand and inflationary pressure. So oil is, looks like it's starting to trade. Maybe it's going to trade north of $70 on WTI. You have a limited upside there between 70 and 80 At $80 is where the, most of the street thinks, oh, that's going to be your inflationary pressures. So if you get a breakout and it breaks past 80, I think the market could have some trouble there digesting that, thinking, okay, here's the next leg of the inflationary pulse. Conversely, if oil happens to fall from these levels, the market's going to interpret that as saying, wow, global demand has died, unless there's some kind of supply event, but global demand has died, therefore the economy is not as strong as we thought it was, and therefore that will drive equity prices lower. So I think it's a really key juncture here for oil and the equity markets. The markets will tell us which way they want to go. The markets will tell mm-hmm. us what we want to do. But either way, keep watching oil because it's going to move equity markets. I like where BK is going with this guy. But I'm curious, do you think that this particular commodity is the best read in terms of inflation or are there too many other sort of external factors whether it be the Saudis deciding to do X, Y, and Z, or a ship getting stuck someplace that sort of muddies the water. Yeah, I mean, clearly unrest in the middle. There are a lot of things going on. I think 10 years ago, BK would have said correctly that this was far more important than it is today. But without question, it still has a huge amount of importance. And I think he's on to something. I do think you overlay that with some of the other commodities that we talk about seemingly every night. And there's definitely a story here. I would say this. If you're looking for equities that might continue to tell that story for BK, the levered names are going to be the ones that do it. And, you know, I know we talk about this all the time, but Phillips 66 PSX, we thought earlier in the year would trade up to that last June high of 89. It did. It traded back to 76. Well, here it is again. And a close above 90. And that's off to the races. A dog clearly likes that as well. So I'm with the dog. I think PSX, if you're looking for a barometer, that's the one, $90 being your pivot level. Very outspoken dog we've got on the panel someplace. Um, our <laughs> next guest says markets are underestimating the real threat inflation can pose. Nancy Davis is the founder and chief investment officer of Quadratic Capital, manager of the firm's interest rate volatility ETF, which is also an inflation hedge. She joins us now. Nancy, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. You actually say that the markets are underestimating the amount of inflation out there because CPI just is not a good measure. We've known that CPI is not a very good measure. So I'm wondering how much inflation you think we really have on our hands right now. Well, I think we can all feel it. I mean, any uh, American consumer right now, have you tried to buy a bike? Have you tried to buy a webcam? Have you tried to buy a sofa, a computer? Everything uses chips and we're having a global chip shortage. So I definitely think it's a, a tough time where the CPI index isn't capturing necessarily the real inflation that we feel on a day to day basis. But this is just transitory, Nancy. It's going to pass in a few months. This doesn't. And I and you laughed. You laughed immediately. So does that mean that you think that that notion of transitory 
is bunk when it comes to consumers actually feeling the pinch. It doesn't matter what Jay Powell says. It matters what is actually happening right now in the economy. Well, I think the Fed is prioritizing the unemployment rate over uh, prices right now. They have a dual mandate. Um, We still have a very, very high unemployment rate. They're trying to get people back to work, back into the economy to stimulate Main Street. And I think the Fed is willing to look past inflation. And I think that's a what they've been saying is every central bank around the world has been trying to get inflation. I think if they get inflation, they'll actually see it as a win. The thing that they're really focused on is that unemployment number, though. Hey, Nancy, it's Brian Kelly. So I'm curious, that unemployment number seems to be a bit skewed, too, though, because we hear anecdotally it's very hard to find help, yet unemployment went up. So there's something that the Fed isn't capturing or in their numbers it's not capturing. I'm curious, do you think the Fed is making a policy error as we speak? I don't think they're making a policy error. I think they're trying to do the best they can. But no, everybody's human. They don't have perfect information. We have two major indices. And I think indices is a key point to emphasize. It's like if your viewers bought the Dow Jones and said, aha, I have equities. The Dow Jones is one index. The CPI is one index. It's a consumer price index. And the PCE, which also the Fed uses, is another index. It's very hard to measure something like inflation. And I think the rates market is a very pure and simple way of actually seeing where investors will lend money in the future. And that's largely a result of investors' expectations for inflation in the future. Based on how your ETF is being traded and in terms of the volume, in terms of how it's being traded, Nancy, I'm wondering if you if you can sort of glean how investors are positioning themselves for inflation, if they do think it's just, you know, a few months kind of thing, a few quarters kind of thing, et cetera. I think most of our investors who use IVAL are not are not making a bet about whether inflation is going to happen or not. I think most of them, you know, there are two ways that, uh, you know, people can lose their life savings. A is having portfolios that are correlated with one another where everything goes down, stocks, bonds, everything together. And the other is a loss of purchasing power from inflation. So I think most of our uh, investors in Ival are using it as an asset allocation trade to say, look, we want to have inflation in our portfolio, Mm -hmm. but we want another index beyond CPI. Right. Nancy, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy Davis of Quadratic. Dan Nathan, what do you think? I think, Mel, we're going to look back on 2021 and we're going to call it the transitory tantrum. Tantrum from 2013 when rates got to about 3% and equities freaked out for a little bit. I think the amount of time that, that economists and strategists and pundits like us are spending on this inflation thing. We know inflation has been here. We know it gets measured differently. We know that people were yelling about inflation was coming back from 2008-9 when we started QE and ZERP and all that sort of stuff. So to me, I just don't know what the big deal is. We're going to have these periods where there's big shortages. We just had one of the major, we just had the biggest disconnect in the global economy in 100 years. Yeah, there's shortages and there's certain surpluses in other places and everything. I think we're going to look back and be like, oh, well, that was kind of funny. They already told us they're going to let inflation run a little hot. Right. They started telling us that last year. So to me, I don't know. I think we're making a big to do about nothing. And, and I think in retrospect, maybe maybe that will be the case when we look back in a year or two. But we're, we're in the fall, Tim. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts. When we're in the fall, 
when inflation is still here, when consumers are paying, when price increases go through on things like pampers and paper towels, um, unemployment benefits come off, um, eviction moratoriums come off, what happens then? Because it's all about how this economy claws its way out of this recession um, that was induced by the pandemic. And maybe it's not the right time for inflation in terms of a smooth economic recovery. Well, I think Dan, Dan is right to say, hey, folks, let's take a deep breath yeah. here. And, and there's imbalances that, that clearly exist and they will be eradicated in a free flowing global economy, which eventually I believe we're, we're going to get. Um, I, I think, though, we can all push back and I'll, I'll just phrase it as, you know, I think I've said it before this way uh, and others have said this. Um, the Fed is chasing whether it's 50 bips or 100 basis points of inflation at the risk of a global asset bubble. Look, come on, copper prices are at all time highs. Uh, lumber prices are at all time highs. Housing prices are at all time highs. And in places we never thought they would be, we have created and uh, we're not even talking about the stock market. So uh, the question is, uh, is, is uh, what point um, are we going to pay the price for this? By the way, uh, you know, how about that payroll number of last Friday? Do you really think that's going to show up? No, the inefficiencies of just the, the non-farm payroll uh, data series means that I, I think the numbers we're going to get for May are going to be extraordinary. Hmm. Uh, and that's going to be even scarier for people. I think that first yeah. Friday of June, you better be switched on. So I, I think in the short run, um, the fact that Fed policy needs to be altered is, is going to be devastating for equities. Um, right now, it's not. And I think we could, you know, give or take some, some spikes, get through this. But at some point this year, they're going to have to make an adjustment. Yeah. Coming up, Bitcoin is in need of some love as the crypto continues to sink. And the Chartmaster is here to update his big call on Bitcoin's next move. But first, shares of Airbnb need, in need of room service as <laughs> the stocks post IPO lockup ends. We're checking into this name. Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money Investors. Checking out of Airbnb today. Shares dropping more than 6% as the stocks post IPO lockup expires, allowing insiders to sell the home rental firm beating expectations when it reported last Thursday. The stock is still up nearly 95% from its IPO price. Um, Dan, what do you think of this uh, action today? You know, I had a call uh, with Jim Chanos uh, of Kinecos the other day, and he said, if your bull case for a story is how much it's down from its all-time highs, you're kind of doing it wrong here. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of, um, of these recent IPOs over the last six months or so. Listen, Airbnb just reported it was a great quarter. They were going to be a winner in this new hospitality domain pre-pandemic, and they obviously got nailed last year, and they're coming out of it pretty strong good quarters and they're going to do fantastically except for one issue the stock is trading at about 24 times sales and investors seem to be very focused on those sorts of valuation metrics right now so to me i love the story i want to be long the stock and i think they're going to do well in the back half of the year but i, I can't tell you that it can live at this valuation in this market right here the dog barking in the background is almost comical. Sorry, Dan. It was a very serious. <laughs> I know it's not your. It's Brian Kelly's. I can tell by the intonation of the bark that it's Brian's dog. Um, nice. Anyway, yes. you've got their fans of Airbnb on this panel. Tim and Guy, I will you know name call you out because you guys have said that you like this one. Um, the issue here, though, is that there is tremendous demand for this, but onboarding hosts is a very difficult thing, and at some point there is. There is a supply limit, isn't there? That is a natural ceiling to this company's growth. Guy, I'll let you uh, take this one. 
No, you're 100% right. And that's obviously the nation. Look, Dan just gave you the, yeah. the metric that makes the most sense. I think the people are most focused on. I think it speaks to what you're saying. And owning this stock has been more than a bit caustic to your portfolio. But what I will say is this. The quarter was, I thought, spectacular. And if you look, Wells Fargo the next day, I think May 14th, after they reported, said, you know what? Love the quarter, $200 price target, which is about 47% higher than where the stock is now. So they're not concerned with valuation. I will say the metrics on the quarter were very good. And the good news today is the stock traded 40 million shares. You flushed a lot of people out. It typically trades five. Maybe you have something to trade against in the form of 130. All that said, I've been wrong now for a long time. Dan, you wanted to quickly reply? Yeah, I just wanted to correct myself. I said 24 times sales. It's trading at 15 times sales, $80 billion market cap. At its highs, it was up there above 20. So I just wanted to be really clear on that. And trading about 11 times next year's expected sales. So still kind of reasonable um, on next year's outnumber, but who knows what that's going to be. To your point, Mel, that's still an issue. Onboarding, new homes, that sort of thing. I mean, like, listen, there's still a lot of questions on this one. All right, coming up. Bitcoin's wild ride continues as the crypto continues to drop our own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, and the chart master, Carter Worth, are breaking down this move next. Plus, it has been a tough year for Chinese internet stocks, but one options trader just made a big bet that things are about to change on one name. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Coinbase closing below its $250 reference price for the first time since going public just last month. The crypto exchange also announcing a one and a quarter billion dollar convertible note offering after the close. Coinbase has only risen six days since going public in the after hour session. It's now down about two and three quarters percent. Um, Brian Kelly, what do you think that's all about? I mean, <laughs> how can you do this offering right after going public? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and listen, you know, they picked a terrible time, it appears, to go public in the Bitcoin world because they went public right at almost at the top or the recent top of Bitcoin. So, you know, they've got a double whammy here, um, you know, that this is the, the benefit to them of being a public company and the negative for shareholders like myself uh, of having this happen. So ultimately, they're going to have a lot of cash to spend. I think the long term story for Coinbase still is really quite positive, uh, as I think the story, the longer term story for Bitcoin is really quite positive. But it's definitely painful being a shareholder today. Dan, you had a very salty expression, not surprisingly, when Brian was speaking. If you're a shareholder, this is like a zero coupon convert that converts up 55% from current levels. So to me, they went public through a direct listing. They didn't put any cash on their balance sheet. They already have a couple billion on their balance sheet. Now they're raising more. This is actually how I think these sorts of direct listing mechanisms should work. I think um, we saw Slack do the same thing. I think it worked out pretty well for them. So to me, I actually think this makes perfect sense. Hmm. Well, the chart masters, you recall, called the Bitcoin breakdown back in April. So let's take a listen. One reference point is the January peak. And you can see um, the line I've drawn there. Look at the next chart. Uh, Another reference point is the 150-day moving average. Now, take a look at uh, the next chart. It's those all put together. They all triangulate. They all come down to around the 40,000 a plus level. Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth joins us now with an updated take on where Bitcoin could be headed next. Carter, what do you see? 
Well, you know, it's, uh, what do you say? It's fascinating, it's frustrating, it's enticing. And um, let's try to figure it out together. A couple charts. So the first chart, we know that it was sitting around 10,000 Bitcoin last summer and autumn. And we went on this six-fold increase up to the peak of just one month ago on April 14th of 64,000 and change. And then we broke trend, which you can see on that chart. Second chart, if you do break trend, uh, are there reference points? Well, one is the prior peak, um, uh, an intermediate top, and that would be that Jan 8th top at around 42,000. Now put those two charts together, next chart, and one reference point is this prior high. But the question about a prior high is, is it support one point in time? Not particularly good support. So now look at the next chart. Support is not a plywood board or a concrete floor. It's a mattress top. You, you, we're down to support, but you can sink into support, like a child jumping on the bed in the hotel room. So next chart. We're down 35% now. Were we to get to the bottom of support, we would be down 55%. And you can see that on the next chart. The final chart, this is sort of all data going back to 2011. And the question is, we're down 35% now. Could we draw down 55? Of course we could. So put it in context. There have been 11, you can count them, 30% plus declines in Bitcoin going back to 2011. And the average decline of those is about 56%. Some have been 80, 85, others have been shallower at 30, 35, but they all average out around 55. Were we to go down 55, we would be at the lower end of support. I think we're in support, it's fighting, but my hunch is it goes lower. Okay, Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton, worth of Cornerstone Macro. Um, Carter does great charts, we all know that. He is in the Pantheon, the Parthenon, Pantheon. whatever you want to call it, of great technical analysts. But Tim, when you see Elon Musk being the primary driver of Bitcoin's trade over the past week, how does that make you feel, even knowing that Carter says we are still in a support channel um, about this trade? Well, I mean, it's with great irony that it was supposed to be corporate adoption that was really the driver for for, I think, this leg of the Bitcoin trade higher before this pullback, which was that if, you know, X percentage and it didn't have to be one percent of corporate treasury went went, you know, all in on on Bitcoin. In other words, a very small, small exposure. Anyway, so the, the point is, um, it, it tells you the momentum and the, you know, calling the lemming nature of what's been going on out there. But, but you know, Carter's point is a great one. Brian Kelly's made this point throughout time. This is garden variety stuff in terms of the volatility of the asset class. And, and that actually, with some of the institutional adoption as it relates to the investor side, I think mm -hmm. you actually have a, a, a greater anchor under Bitcoin here. So um, I think it's going to bounce off the bottom end of this. I, I don't see why suddenly we've changed the fundamentals from the macro or the regulatory perspective. I had to wrap like a minute ago, but I'm going to go back to Brian Kelly. Um, in terms of Elon Musk, he made it clear that he hasn't sold, that Tesla has not sold Bitcoin, which is what causes sort of like lower when he responded vaguely that they might have or then they might still in the future. If this was a positive for him to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, isn't this a negative equally to the downside? I mean, it obviously has been because it's been the excuse for, for or Bitcoin more so to, go to the lower downside. Here. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, 
I, I mean, he, he, he bought it at, uh, what, 20000 That was the breakout. And so, you know, it uh, tripled from there. Now we're down 30%, maybe probably 20 or so on his comments. Uh, listen, Bitcoin needs to survive this Elon Musk. It will survive Elon Musk. It needs to get past Elon Musk. The entire point about Bitcoin is it is bigger than any one individual. It's not acting that way right now, but you also just have the natural market cases. What I will tell you is the underlying fundamentals are starting to line up for a buy here in Bitcoin. It's not a screaming buy yet. Mm -hmm. So when I look at the underlying fundamentals, I look at the address growth and what the address over the last 30 months, address growth has been about down about 3%, but the market is pricing negative 15% address growth. That differential is starting to get into a buy zone. All right. Coming up, one option trader making a big bet on JD.com ahead of its earnings on Wednesday. We'll tell you why it caught our eye when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast. We're watching shares of JD.com, a huge trade crossing the options market just before today's close. Let's get to Tony Zhang, who breaks down the action. Tony. Yeah, so JD reports earnings here this Wednesday morning, and currently the options market is implying a 6.8% move for earnings, which is actually fairly muted. That's the second smallest implied earnings move for the past eight quarters. And just like you said, 15 minutes before the close, we saw a very sizable 12,000 contracts of a synthetic stock strategy trade across the tape. So this particular trader sold 12,000 contracts of the June 67 and a half puts, collecting about $2.92 for that, and then spending $3.61 to pay for 12,000 contracts of the June 67 and a half calls, net-net here collecting, uh, paying about 69 cents for this particular trade. And this strategy may be confusing or a little complex off the surface, but it's really the risk profile of being long 1.2 million shares of this stock. Notional value of about 82 million, betting on a bounce for JD. All right. Thank you, Tony, for more Options Action. Tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade, Tim. Chevron. BK. Freeport. Dan. Viacom CBS. Guy. Newmont. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 